Get ready for real comedy fun. Why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? I don't think that's funny. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for another episode of Stories. This week we're talking about comedy. Comedy, comedians, funny stuff. That's the stuff that I've always loved ever since I can remember. I've liked comedy, I've liked comedians, I've liked stand-up, and it's something that I've enjoyed all of my life. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this episode is because comedy has changed so much over the years. When I was growing up, there was a whole different breed of stand-up comedy. The comedians were different, the things that were funny was different. I like to think certain things are universal. Bad puns, everybody always gets them at least. As a dad, I specialize in the dad joke. Dad, I'm hungry. Hi, hungry, I'm dad. Those will always stand the test of time. Every kid will groan when their dad does a dad joke, because that's the law. But ever since I was a kid, I've always loved comedians. Part of that is because when I was a kid, the entertainment that we had was, as I've said many times, either TV and about six channels, or radio, or records, actual vinyl records. That's all we had. And what you could do when I was a kid is go to the store and buy records from comedians. You can still do that today, but back then, if you wanted to hear a comedian... You had to buy his record. You didn't see him on TV. They didn't have comedy shows on. There wasn't a Comedy Central network back then. And as a teenager, and as a preteen, if I wanted to hear comedians, I wasn't going to any clubs. My parents weren't taking me to a club. There weren't any clubs to go to. The clubs that they had were little basement enclaves in downtown New York, or Detroit, or Los Angeles. They didn't have big comedy venues back then like they do now. You've heard of the Comedy Cellar? Maybe you haven't. There used to be a club called the Comedy Cellar. It really was the cellar of a club. Stand-up comedians would cut their teeth doing routines in front of small crowds and small bars, opening for musical acts, getting any kind of gig they could get. But stand-up comedy didn't start growing until the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the way it is now. Nowadays, you have comedians selling out arenas. But back in the day, comedians started in little coffee shops and the basements of bars, and that's where they got their start. And if you wanted to hear somebody who was an up-and-coming comedian, you had to hope they put out a record, and you found the record. And at one point, as I was growing up, I thought, wow, being a stand-up comedian, that must be a cool job. It wasn't until much later that I learned that it's not that cool a job. It's a lot of hard work. Yes, it's cool, but boy, there's a lot of hard work with it. So I never went down the road of becoming a stand-up comedian, but I found comedians that I liked, And I found routines that I liked, and I found styles that I liked. And I found myself listening to pretty much every comedian's album that I could get my hands on. And I would spend hours listening to them over and over and over again. Because I liked the jokes. I liked the audience reactions. I liked the way they would build a routine. One of the first jokes that I learned about comedy came from listening to these early comedians. Now, to get the joke across to you, I'm going to have to turn to Mr. Agador for some help. Because this is not a joke you could do on your own. But this is one of the first jokes that I learned about comedy. Mr. Agador. Mr. Agador. What? All right, I need your help. Okay. You're going to ask me a question, and the question is, what's the secret of comedy? Okay, go. Okay. What's the secret to comedy? Timing. I learned the secret to good comedy was good timing. You can have the funniest joke in the world, but if you tell it with the wrong beats, if you tell it with the wrong punchline, it'll land flat and nobody will laugh. 
And so I listened to these guys craft these routines and craft these jokes. And I would listen to their timing and how they'd build to a punchline or how they'd slip a funny line into the middle of a story and how they phrased things. The comedians that I grew up with as a kid were all storytellers. Well, I shouldn't say all, primarily storytellers, because we had the storyteller type comedians, and I'm going to give you the list of the ones that I grew up with. But we also had the one-liner type of comedians, those schlocky, vaudevillian type one-liner guys. Henny Youngman, for instance, was known as the king of the one-liners. Now, you may not know Henny Youngman, but Henny Youngman was a big fella, played a little violin, would play three or four bars of a song, and then rip off three or four one-liners. And the one-liners were, by today's standards, always groaners. One of his most famous one-liners was, Take my wife, please! And again, the timing is impeccable there if he does it right, which he always did. But his one-liners were always quick-hitting, quick laughs. Most of them would land, but he would do them in such rapid-fire succession. For instance, I just came back from a pleasure trip. Took my mother-in-law to the airport. Waiter, there's a fly in my soup. What's he doing? The backstroke. For vacation, my wife asked me to take her someplace she's never been before, so I took her to the kitchen. Those are the kind of one-liners he would rattle off in rapid succession. And then he'd go to the violin and play a few and then ten more one-liners, and that was his routine. But he had the timing of those one-liners down, and the crowd would roar. He was just that good. And yes, they were schlocky jokes, and yeah, they were old punchlines, and that was part of the fun. But the other comedians that I grew up with were the storytellers. Now, the big one when I was a kid, and it's because his albums were everywhere, was Bill Cosby. Now, these days, Bill Cosby has, <laughs> has a lot of problems that have nothing to do and that we didn't know anything about with respect to his early comedy. Now, I'm not saying Bill Cosby is a wonderful human being. He's not. He's been convicted of heinous crimes, and I don't excuse that. But when I was a kid, we listened to his albums all of the time. And no matter what he's done, no matter what horrible, horrible things he's committed, the man was a comedic genius back in the 60s and 70s. His stand-up routines were really, really funny. And I had probably four or five of his comedy albums. There was one called Why Is There Air? I remember that one vividly. And there was another one to Russell, my brother, with whom I slept. That was a hysterical album. The whole second side of the album was based on him having to share a bed with his brother when he was growing up and the antics they would get into as two little boys trying to go to sleep. And the way he told it was just hysterical. And he would craft these routines that were just riveting and very, very funny. And I guess that's why it's such a tragic shame that he threw it all away by being, well, by being a dick. But he was a funny guy, and that's one of the guys that I listened to when I was growing up. But it wasn't just Cosby. There were other guys who just made me laugh. If you've ever heard of Bob Newhart, he had a couple of TV shows on. He had Newhart, where he was the owner of a hotel in Vermont, and he was a psychologist in the Bob Newhart show. So a lot of people may know him from his TV. But he started as a stand-up. Much like Seinfeld in the 90s, who started as a stand-up and got the TV show, Newhart started as a stand-up and evolved and parlayed that into two TV shows. But Newhart's comedy, that man could craft a routine. Now, a lot of his routines were based on scenarios that he would create. Some would be a telephone call, for instance. Another scenario was the driving instructor. And what he would do is one half of the dialogue of a scenario 
like a driving instructor. And he would do the driving instructor's side of the conversation. And you would have to infer either what the other lines were or what the actions were that spurred the driving instructor to say what he said. And he would deliver these lines in such a perfectly timed way. You felt like you were there in a car with a driving instructor or in the office as he's on the phone with, in one routine, Abraham Lincoln. And it was just impeccable timing and very funny writing. And I'm not going to try to repeat Bob Newhart's routines. The reason I'm telling you about it is if you're interested in some of the old school comedy, these are guys to look up. Go look up Bob Newhart's routines. Some of his classic stuff still holds up today. Now, the comedy, just like movies, slower paced and building slowly to the funny. But it's worth the trip. Another comedian that I liked was a guy named Shelley Berman. Now, Shelley Berman was popular in the 50s. I never saw him live. And the only reason that I ever heard of him was thanks to my dad's exploits in the auction house. Because my dad would bring back these boxes of albums that he would pick up at an auction or garage sale, and I would page through them. And I found two or three albums by this guy named Shelley Berman. And the cover of the album was very simplistic. It was a dark stage with a guy on a stool in a spotlight sitting there. And it had Shelley Berman on the front of it. I had no idea who Shelley Berman was, but I figured, well, let's put it on and see what it is. Shelley Berman was a raconteur. He would tell stories. He didn't tell jokes. He would tell stories. And the way he would tell a story and the way he would craft a story would drag you into it. And you would be invested in the story because of the way he told it. And again, because it's not jokes, because it's stories, and because they're so perfectly timed, it's very, very hard to explain why he's funny without listening to him. But boy, I would sit and listen to his comedy album over and over again, just listening to the way he would roll out a story, the way he'd build to a punchline. He was a master storyteller. Really, really good. Now, Shelley Berman, in later years, went on to guest star on TV and various roles. He was a judge on Boston Legal, for instance, but he started in stand-up. George Carlin was another guy that I grew up listening to. Now, George Carlin started as more of a funny comedian. He would tell topical jokes, but in a lighthearted, funny way. He didn't become the grumpy, curmudgeonly political commentator that he did become in the later part of his career. Before that, in the 60s and the 70s, he was more of a, a straight-up funny guy. And I know this because I have one of his earliest albums. Again, from an auction box of goodies that my dad brought home. It was one of George Carlin's earliest albums. I don't even remember the name of it. But his comedy was more straightforward, lighthearted, make-you-laugh kind of fair. I remember he introduced, Hey man, the hippy-dippy weatherman. The hippy-dippy weatherman was something that George Carlin created as a means of trying to comment on how weird and wacky the weathermen were, at least in California. Now, in later years, Carlin became much more political in his views. He would still be observational, and he would still tell stories, but they all had a much sharper edge to them. They were more politically motivated. They were more commentary on the ills of society. I think the turning point came, and I want to say it was in the mid-70s. That's when Carlin did the routine, The Seven Words You Can't Say on Television. It's funny looking back now. There's still a couple of them on the list that you can't say on television because they're considered quote-unquote dirty words. But back in the 1970s, I want to say early 70s, 72, 73, something like that, Carlin did a routine called The Seven Words You Can't Say on Television. Now, I'm not going to say all the words because there's a couple of words in there that I just never say. I personally find them offensive and inappropriate, so I don't say them myself. 
But I understand his point. And it's very easy to look up the seven words if you want to. And you guys who know me know the words that I won't say. And if you listen to the episode on cursing, you know I generally don't curse. But back in the 70s, for instance, the word piss was not one that you could say on television. The word tits was not anything you could say on television. The word cocksucker was not anything you could say on television. Nowadays, that's like nothing. By today's standards, those three words are, yeah, okay. But back in the 70s, oh, 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 no, you could not say those words and four others. Use your imagination. You can figure them out. But it's when that routine got him in trouble that I think Carlin really changed his commentary and his comedy to be more edgy and more political. Now, he wasn't the first one to do that. There was a comedian named Lenny Bruce. Now, I'd like to say I know Lenny Bruce, but Lenny Bruce was way before my time and my parents didn't listen to him. I didn't see any of his albums anywhere. I don't even know if Lenny Bruce made albums. I know who Lenny Bruce is. I know Lenny Bruce got in trouble for saying various what were then considered dirty words, which included Carlin 7 plus a couple of extras, balls, ass, which, by the way, you find that on Nickelodeon these days, don't you? But back in the 60s, you couldn't say balls or ass on TV either. But Lenny Bruce was edgy before edgy was cool. George Carlin became edgy at the appropriate time, I guess, is the best way to put it, because George Carlin's career took off. And he became very popular and very sought after. There was one routine that he did about religion, which sticks with me to this day. And it's essentially about not forcing your religion on other people. And again, I can't do Carlin's routine justice, so I'm not going to try to repeat it here. But if you ever have the time or the inclination, go look up George Carlin's routine about religion and natives. It's really on point. But to contrast my love for Carlin, I also loved Rodney Dangerfield who was another straight-up comedian. He was more of a joke-teller than a storyteller. And he was similar to Henny Youngman in that he would reel off joke after joke after joke. But he had this whole persona as the guy who, I can't get no respect. That was his routine. Now, Rodney Dangerfield ultimately wound up making a lot of movies. He was in Caddyshack. They did Easy Money. He was in Back to School. He had appearances in bunches of movies over the 80s and the 90s. But I love Dangerfield's style, too. So those are the guys that I listened to a lot, and I loved what they did. But one of the most unique talents that came out of the 70s and the 80s, who put out one of the most unique albums I've ever listened to, was a guy named Albert Brooks. Now, Albert Brooks does a lot of writing. He's been in a lot of movies. But he started in stand-up, too. And Albert Brooks had a very unique sense of humor. If you look up Albert Brooks' And some of his appearances on The Tonight Show, you see some of the best stuff that he's done. But back in the 70s, I want to say mid-70s, late-70s, he put out an album called Comedy Minus One. And it was a really unique thing. I'd never seen anybody do it. Nobody's ever done it since. And what he did was, the first side of the album was standard recording of a stand-up routine that he did. And he would tell jokes about how it was difficult being a stand-up comedian. But the second side of the album was a for lack of a better term, sketch comedy routine that he put together. And he read one of the parts. I can't even say read. He acted out one of the parts in this sketch comedy routine. The other part was to be acted out by the listener. And to do that in the album, and this is, again, one of those big vinyl albums, you know, the LP, you opened up the album cover and inside the cover there was a script and the script had your lines. They had his lines too, but it highlighted your lines. So you would put the second side of the album on, 
and you'd get an intro from Albert explaining what you were supposed to do, namely read your lines. And it was a very corny comedy routine. I don't remember the script, although I should, because here's what I did. I discovered that album at the library, and I took that album out of the library over and over and over again. And I listened to it over and over and over again. And I practiced that comedy sketch over and over and over again. It was me and Albert Brooks in my bedroom practicing Comedy Minus One. And I practiced it so much, I had the darn thing memorized. And I had it memorized so well that I wanted to put on a show for my parents. Yes, typical child putting on a show for my parents. But that's what I did. Now, all these years later, you would think that I'd remember what the sketch was about. I have no idea what the sketch was about. Or I didn't, at least, until I looked it up. Because I couldn't remember what the sketch was about. I just remember doing it. It's a really cornball routine called the auto mechanic. And you can look it up if you, if you really want to. You can look up the sketch for Comedy Minus One. And what you have is Albert doing the straight lines and you doing the comedic lines. And they built in a laugh track and an applause track so that when you would do the funny line, the audience would laugh. So you had a laugh track to back you up. So when you said the funny line, you would get a response as if you were on stage. It was a brilliant concept. And if you were a dorky little kid like me who wanted to perform this kind of thing, it was perfect. You got the feedback that you really wanted to get from this fake audience on this album while you're performing in your bedroom. It was amazing. I actually looked up the script before I started recording this episode because you can find anything you want on the internet. And sure enough, it's there. And as I'm reading the script, I go, oh, yeah, I remember this. God, it was corny. And yes, it was corny. But it was such a brilliant concept. And it literally kept me entertained for hours. The routine itself was maybe 10 minutes long. And I don't know why I got such a thrill out of that. But I loved that album. And even after I performed my routine for my parents, I would keep taking the album out of the library and keep performing the routine for my own amusement. I would play Comedy Minus One over and over again, and I would rehearse it in my head, and I'd rehearse it in my bedroom, until I had that routine locked down. And as I've spent some time here re-reviewing the script for the first time in literally decades, I go, oh yeah, I remember these jokes, yeah. Looking back, I don't know how my parents put up with me. I don't know how they had the patience to sit there and watch me do this routine with a comedian on an album in our living room. But they did. They, they must have really loved me. <laughs> the reason I wanted to tell you about some of that old comedy, well, there's a couple of reasons. The first reason is it probably helps explain why I am the way I am. I've listened to comedy all of my life. I've listened to funny stuff. I've tried to be funny all of my life. I've tried to work on timing so that my jokes would land the way they're supposed to. I like to think I'm a funny kind of guy. Do I think I could ever do stand-up? No, not, not in a hundred years could I do a stand-up comedy routine. But I think having a sense of humor and being able to laugh at jokes and being able to laugh at situations is important. It gives you perspective. It gives you tools to deal with what is otherwise a very harsh world. And being able to look at a thing and find the funny aspect of it makes it easier to deal with life. And I think that's one of the things that I learned listening to comedy for as long as I can remember. The other reason I wanted to mention these old comics is I don't want their memories to die. There's some funny stuff out there. 
Even though his older stuff, Newhart's routines, Shelley Berman's routines, Albert Brooks' routines still stand up today. And if you're at all interested in comedy, I highly recommend that you go look them up and give them a listen. Because those guys were the masters of the craft. Those guys knew how to tell stories. They knew how to make you laugh. Anyway, that's going to do it for today's episode of Storytime. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time to spend time with me today. As always, I appreciate your support. I appreciate you being here. And I can't thank you enough. Until next time, you take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you. Thank you.